The following is a presentation by The Tabernacle, a community of changed lives. For more information regarding service times or if you would like to make a donation to The Tabernacle, you can do so by visiting our website at www.thetabchurch.com. Welcome to the tabernacle. I don't know what it's like at Man of Stephen and Buckley. That was the worst. How about this? Hi. Hi. All right. Much better. Welcome. All right. Sorry. I, I know you don't know how to respond. Neither do I know what to say. But my name is John. I'm one of the pastors. We are glad you're here. We are one church uh, in two locations, uh, both here in Buckley and in Manistee. And uh, we appreciate you being a part of our service, whether you're a member or you're an attender or you're just trying us out for the first time. We also have a bunch of people that tune in uh, all over the country and apparently all over the world, and we're grateful for each and every one. We're a church that's about changed lives. Do you believe that? We're a church that loves God and loves people. Do you believe that? We're a church that believes there's no wasted words in Scripture. Do you believe that? That's right. That's who we are, that's who we want to be, and we're a church, most importantly, that's about Jesus. He's the one true hero. He's the hero of this church, he's the hero of our faith, he's the hero of our lives. If you don't know anything about Jesus, you picked a good uh, uh, weekend to come, because we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus. Uh, We try to all the time, Uh, but we're in Judges chapter 2, and we're going to see that he's also continually the hero of Scripture, even in this Old Testament book. Just by way of knowing where we're going, we're going to be in the book of Judges uh, till about December. Then we're going to take like a four-week break uh, because it's apparently it's Christmas. You guys all right with that? If we do a little Christmas thing, we got some special stuff uh, planned for that. I won't tell you right now because it's a Christmas present. And if you find out your Christmas present before Christmas, you can't have it. So it's a secret. You're not going there with me? All right, it's a secret, but it's going to be awesome. Then we're going to be in Judges again till about um, the Easter season, and we've got some stuff that will be planned for that as well. So if you have a Bible, if you would go ahead and open it to the book of Judges. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to do something a little bit different this weekend. Is I'm going to read the entire chapter because it's particularly important to understanding the book of Judges. And I'll try not to do it in a way that's just uh, kind of monotone. We'll take a few breaks to explain a few things. But chapter 2 is almost another introduction. In fact, chapter 2 is, in effect, a virtual summary of the entire book. So the Hebrew writer, we believe it was Samuel, chose to give us chapter 2 to set up the flow, the cycle of Judges. And if you listen carefully or read it carefully you'll understand it's also a virtual summary 
of our lives. The way human beings have not changed in the thousands of years that we've been on this planet. So without any further ado, uh, we'll jump right into uh, uh, chapter 2 of the book of Judges. If you don't have a Bible, put the words on the screen. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to, uh, I'm, again, I'm going to struggle, Bachim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bachim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now the word Bachim means weeping, and it wasn't named weeping before they got there, even though it appears that way in the text. They named that after this place. Now, also, we've uh, spoken about this uh, before to some of you that have been here. When you see the words, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, I believe, many scholars uh, believe, that that is what we call a theophany. And I'm not trying to bore you with stuff. This is actually pretty cool. When you see the angel of the Lord, a theophany means the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus before he came as a baby, because the angel of the Lord receives worship. The angel of the Lord speaks for God. So if you're wondering where Jesus was going to show up in the book of Judges, right there, chapter 2, a theophany, the pre-incarnate Christ. And he's very specific with them. He says that he won't break his covenant, but he's pointing out the fact that they've already broken their part of the deal. And he's not happy about it. Verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now you'll notice this is a recap because if, if you were paying attention a couple of weeks ago in Judges chapter 1, it said after Joshua died and then it gave us an introduction to the book of Judges. And then apparently here in, Joshua, or in, in Judges chapter 2, Joshua dies again. So the first time I read this, I found myself saying, did Joshua come back to life? Is it a different Joshua? It's the same Joshua. It's just we're following a nonlinear way of telling the story. So we're kind of going back a bit and filling in some gaps. And simply what the author is trying to point out to us is, is this is the formal announcement of Joshua's death. That he was a servant of the Lord and that he was buried within the land that God had promised to him through Moses. Verse 11. And the, people of the, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord 
and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. So that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Now this is the cycle of Judges. This is how the book of Judges flows. Is these people chase after other gods, distress follows, and then they're going to cry out to God. Now when we say they served other gods, you know, we mentioned a name Baal, we mentioned another name Ashtaroth. Just don't think that that's like a picture in a children's book of what's the harm in like taking a knee in front of a golden cow or some type of a statue. There was all these other evil practices that surrounded Baal worship. These were fertility gods and goddesses. Child sacrifice was involved. Human sacrifice was involved. Sexual activity of, 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 a, of like temple prostitution was involved. Disgusting and despicable things. We talk about sex slavery in 2019. Same type of a deal. Where if my child wasn't offered as a human sacrifice to die, they would be offered as a sexual sacrifice to these gods. And so here's God's people who've made a covenant with him and now they're finding themselves worshiping false gods and participating in all of the practices that got the Canaanites kicked out of that country in the first place. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is God's word in Judges chapter 2. And it, again, it's heavy. I promise it won't always be this heavy. In fact, if you stick with us next week when we get into Judges chapter 3, you're going to see the first three judges, and it's more of the action movie that the intro video might imply. 
But this Judges chapter 2 is a picture of the whole book. The way that it goes. That these people angered God by chasing after false gods. In this last passage, it said that while a judge was alive, they would be faithful for a time. So for a time, they would face the consequences of their sin. They'd cry out to God. God would send them a judge, this superhero, not really a superhero the way we think, but this person filled with the Spirit of God to deliver them. And while the judge was with them, they would kind of feign or kind of fake this this worship towards God. But as soon as the judge died, they would go right back to their idolatry. In fact, it said it got more and more and more corrupt. If any of you are familiar with the nature of addiction, that's how addiction goes. You'll see someone that, that falls into or, or is led into or, or by their own choice becomes an addict to narcotics or alcohol or you name it. And for a time, they're clean and sober, right? They've got their coin. They've got X amount of years. And then if there's a fall, it's usually more spectacular than the first one. And each successive one be- can become worse and worse and worse. Just like it says in Judges chapter 2. It's like each generation got more and more corrupt. The most important thing I think we see in the book of Judges, though, is we see a picture of a faithful God. There's a picture of a faithful God. Don't miss this part. Because this is the good part. This is the hope part. Because although Judges 2 is a summary of Judges, it's also a summary of my life. How quickly my heart can turn and worship false gods. I know, I'm a pastor. But I'm also a human. And if you're honest, you are too. And it's easy for us to make idols out of people or out of things... Idols can be mental, idols can be metal. We'll get to idols here in a moment, but the most important thing to see, I think, in Judges 2 is a faithful God. He says, the angel of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers. I will never break my covenant with you. Oh, he's angry. He said that too, did he not? Did you catch that part? Where it says God's anger was kindled against them. But God will never break his word and God will never break his covenant. God says, I will not break my covenant with you. It's something interesting in there for the Bible geeks in the room. It says that the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal. Just by a show of hands, anyone notice that? That the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal? Does that bug anybody? No one in Buckley. I don't know about Manistee. That bugged me. Maybe that's why I get paid the big bucks. Not sure. I don't get paid big bucks, but whatever, right? Does the angel of the Lord live in Gilgal? Is that where he hangs out? Was he on vacation from heaven hanging out in Gilgal? If you read the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 5, Gilgal is the place that these people made a promise to God. They made a covenant. It's where all the men were circumcised, all of those that came out of Egypt, and they made a promise to drive out all of the false gods of Canaan. They would obey him for the rest of their days. God has his part of the deal and the people had their part of the deal. Picture this. Gilgal for us is wherever and whenever you became a Christian. Assuming you are a Christian. Maybe it was at a youth camp. Maybe it was at this church. Maybe it was in the foundry student ministries. 
Maybe it was a moment on a stage. Maybe it was somewhere in a deer stand. Gilgal was that place where you first met God and you committed yourself to God. Where you asked Christ into your life. Where you said, I believe in you by faith. Where he granted you his grace and boom, you were adopted and and, and you became a Christian. That's what Gilgal is. That's what Gilgal was for them. Same thing for us. And it's meaningful that the angel comes from Gilgal. He's pointing to something. He's saying, do you remember your commitment to me? Do you remember where we made commitments to each other? If it was a husband and a wife, it would be, remember where we got married? And the angel of the Lord shows up saying, you haven't kept your end of the deal. You haven't stayed committed to me. You're not smashing the altars. You're not destroying the idols. You're being led astray by them. But God says, I will not break my covenant with you. See, he's a faithful God. And the same faithful God in the book of Judges is the same faithful God to you today. Now you might say, well, then why did he get angry? Well, because he's faithful. He's faithful to me. He's faithful to you. But he also has to stay faithful to his holiness. He also has to be faithful to his justice. He also has to be faithful enough to let me face the consequences of the foolish idol worship of my own heart. That's a faithful God. That's a faithful God who will be a respecter of persons and let you choose a master That is not him. And lets you face the consequences of that master. You see, whatever it is that we worship will eventually enslave us. Whatever you and I choose to make idols in our heart, and we do. The church is full of idols. Our country is full of idol worship. All of us have been guilty or are guilty. And God is a God that will let you have your idol. He won't even compete with that idol. And he's faithful enough to let you face the consequences of that idol. He's also a faithful God in that he's a God, as the author says, that eventually when they cry out in distress and they're groaning, he can't take it anymore. And he'll send a judge. Now, I know it's a silly example, but I remember when we had our first child. And we read a book. uh, uh, It wasn't a very good book, but it was called Growing Kids God's Way. Right? Right? As if this person knew. But we took it hook, line, and sinker. Right? And we can argue about parenting. And we can argue about money. And we can argue about, you know, politics. But I I don't want to start a fight. But we were bound to determine that this child was going to sleep in her own bed no matter how hard she screamed. We'd stuff cotton balls in our ears. You know what I'm saying, first child? She could raise the roof. I know this because she's uh, singing on this stage in Buckley this weekend, right? She would scream and scream and scream. And no matter how much we were like, no, she will face the consequences. Eventually, she will cry herself out. Eventually, we couldn't take it. And when one or the other wasn't looking, we'd sneak in there, come here, let me give you a bottle, right? That's a faithful parent. And that's a faithful God. That's not to say that God was swayed or changed in his mind. He let them face the consequences, but he also loved them so much 
that in their distress, he would send them a savior. He would send them a judge. God is faithful, scripture tells us, even when we are faithless. Scripture also tells us that God doesn't love the way that man loves. We love conditionally. We pick it up at a young age. If I do this, I'll be accepted. If I don't do this, I won't be accepted. We learn it from our parents. We learn it from friends. We learn it at school. God doesn't love that way. He's a faithful God that says to this idolatrous people, I will never break my covenant with you. Oh, make no mistake, it's going to (laughs) hurt. It's going to hurt. He's going to allow it to hurt. He's going to allow the consequences to be met. But he'll stay faithful. We also see this little inserted part that I think is important. We see a faithful servant. This is the formal announcement of Joshua's death. It says Joshua actually heard that. He he was actually there when he saw what the legacy was going to look like. He heard the angel of the Lord say, I will keep my covenant, but you haven't kept your covenant. But Joshua died having kept the covenant because he was a faithful servant. In fact, as I was looking at this passage this week in verse 8, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, comma, the servant of the Lord. Is there a better title anyone could ever have is there a better tombstone anyone could ever have joshua didn't worship the Baals. joshua didn't worship the asterisk joshua lived 110 years as a faithful servant of the lord and he died and he received his reward he was buried in canaan in the land so I'm, I'm a little bit on social media. Not a lot of bit. I know some of you think I'm a lot of bit, but no, no, no. Not anywhere near as some other people I may or may not be married to, but I'm a little bit on social media, all right? And one of the things that I've learned from the kids, so to speak, is, you know, the little hashtag thing, and I also watch a little bit of late night television, and so I'm picking up on, on that. And so one of the things, and I may totally butcher this, I'm not trying to be hip with the kids, I've just noticed, is they'll like post a picture of a couple that they think is super cute, like Tyler Joseph and Jenna Joseph, right? He's a singer in a band that doesn't worry. And then they're so cute, and they'll just put hashtag relationship goals, right? Because they're so cute. Or they'll just see somebody that's really beautiful or someone that they admire and they'll put hashtag goals or hashtag fitness goals, right? And it's always, you know, if they really want to be super dramatic, it'll just be goals. You're not with me? Front row knows what I'm talking about, right? When I think about Joshua, servant of the Lord, a faithful servant of the Lord, church, that is hashtag life goals. That's life goals. Not to be the best. Not to be the wealthiest. Not to be the biggest or the baddest or the smartest or the prettiest. The most successful. How about this? Not to be the happiest. We're a nation that chases happy. What if we were to chase that? That when we breathe our last breath, that they would say, fill in your name, servant, servant of the Lord. 
That's a life goal. And so I guess there is some good stuff here in Judges 2 before it all goes south. There's a faithful God, there's a faithful servant, but then the whole second part of the chapter is faithless idolatry. Faithless idolatry. Uh, The staff was giggling at me as we were planning this service because they saw the word hoard. How many times is he going to say hoard? They got to count on it right now because hoard is an aggressive word. But I can get away with it because it's in the Bible. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but the Spirit of God, who's the true author of this book, chose that word as a graphic picture of who the children of Israel were when they worshiped false gods and who we are when we worship false gods. It's a picture of spiritual prostitution. It says they hoard after other gods. They sold themselves in the most intimate way. That sacred gift given to us by God. That's how God sees it when we have idols in our heart. And this faithless idolatry, it says it arose through another generation who did not know the Lord and then did evil against the Lord. Now, if if you're a student listening, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent, this is for all of us because it points to something really, really important. There was a generation that saw the parting of the Red Sea. There was a generation that was delivered miraculously from slavery. A generation that was led by a pillar of fire at night through a desert and a pillar of cloud by day that saw waters comes out of a rock and food miraculously show up in a desert for God to fight battles with rain and hail. But the next generation didn't know the Lord. Where was the breakdown? They didn't know the Lord, and so they did evil against the Lord. There was a breakdown. You see, there's a, there's a picture here in my view. This is why the church is so important. This is why we don't want to be a church for young people. We don't want to. This is why we don't want to be a church for old people. We want to be a church for young and old people. That's a picture of the church. That's what the church is supposed to be. Because the young have something to learn from the old. And to be honest, the old have something to learn from the young. But somewhere there was a breakdown. We still see it in 2019. I talk to people that are a little more seasoned and well, the young people, they don't want to hear anything from me. Yeah, they do. They just don't know how to get in touch with you because they text Or they don't know how to ask because their dads didn't talk to them. So how are they going to talk to a dad of a dad of a dad that's got gray hair? They want to hear from you. They want to know the stories. And in Israel, what we saw is this this next generation rose up. And they didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the stories. They didn't remember. They hadn't been taught. They hadn't been told about the great things that God had done. And so they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That should also scare those of us that are parents to death. 
I'm not trying to say we have to be helicopter parents and like manage every, everything, you know, and just, you know, be full of fear. But I'm saying we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to make sure that the next generation knows the Lord. It also means that uh, my job is not the most important job in this church. Most important job in this church, as far as I'm concerned, is your student ministries pastors and your children's pastors. Most important ministries in our church, as far as I'm concerned, right there, next generation. For the good of the future of the church. And you can argue with me or not, but if you're that smart, you should probably be serving in next generation ministries. It says that this faithless idolatry, they become more and more and more corrupt. So how do we land this plane? How do do we avoid that? We have to understand what an idol is. So an idol is simply this, anything more important to me than God. An idol that I can be guilty of worshiping, that you can be guilty of worshiping, is anything that's more important to me than God. So exactly what could that be? It could be exactly anything. It could be a person. It could be a relationship. It could be stuff. I mean, the three great categories of idols are money, sex, power. Those usually where our idols fall into. It's either having something to do with stuff or our fear of not having enough stuff or our greed for having more stuff or more security, whatever that falls into that category. But it can also be in human relationships. It could be sexual relationships. It could be being accepted. It could have nothing to do with anything physical. Or it could have to do with how people perceive me or how much power or control that I have. Those are the big categories. But I'm going to be honest with you. Anything, anything that is more important to you than God is an idol. We see this all the time when someone gets really busy with life or you know, family life just comes at them really hard and fast and then all of a sudden they'll disappear from church for months and months or students that'll get really busy or they'll get a boyfriend or girlfriend and boom, they're gone from the foundry. They're gone from the firehouse. Guess what? Idol. Anything that becomes more important to me than God is an idol. It's as bad as if I'm participating in Baal worship or Ashtoreth Worship. Just read an article this week that said there's three particular idols that the church is guilty of. These surprised me. But the more I thought about it, it's like, yeah. There's a big idol in the church is our experience. Our experience. Either the experience has to be exactly the way we want it or the experience of having been let down in the past so we're not going to try anything different in the future. The experience of growing up in this culture, we kind of get used to the way we think God works and we end up making God in our own image just like our first parents in the garden. Your personal experience can become an idol. Your mind can't be changed. Your ways can't be changed. No matter what God says, it's like, well, it's easier for me to do this. If I cut corners, I can do that. Huge idol within the church. That's why you go to so many churches and they go, oh, this is the way we've always done it. Experience is a huge idol. Consumerism. 
That one's easy to see. Consumerism. It's about me, immediate satisfaction, immediate gratification. That kind of me first attitude. Making sure I get mine, making sure I get served. Just because you're a Christian, that doesn't go away. It's a huge idol. And this article said the third one, this one shocked me. He said doctrine can be an idol. Doctrine. When getting it right about how you think God works is more important to you than God, you've made your little doctrine a nice little shiny golden calf. Doctrine can become an idol, not just for preachers, but for people within a congregation. Ministry can be an idol. Your spouse can be an idol. If you're trying to figure that out, because I don't know about you, I don't want the anger of God at me, I don't want the wrath, it talked about the wrath of God. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to incur God's wrath. So if you're wondering what could be an idol in my heart, what is the thing for you that if you lost it, if it was stolen from you, if it was taken from you, if it left you, if it was destroyed, what would devastate you? If that's anything other than God, there's a risk that it could be an idol. We have to keep careful watch on our hearts. What do we do about it? In Colossians chapter 3, there's a hint. You know, I'm not big on the Bible just being a a formula. Do this, this, and this. But sometimes in the Word of God, you find a formula. And so I was so thankful because I was like, how do we use the Bible to point to what Jesus did on the cross? So so I don't want to be guilty of idolatry. I want to root out these things that are more important to me than God so that the only thing that matters is God. You can take everything away, right? I found these couple verses in Colossians 3. And <laughs> lo and behold, be careful what you say. Make your doctrine an idol, John. Here's a little formula. Paul's writing to the church. This is what he says. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He's saying, if you're a Christian, seek things that are above. Seek the things of God, the things of heaven, the things that matter, the things that will last. Seek, number one. Here's number two. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So the first thing I'm supposed to do is If I'm in Christ, if I'm a Christian, if I don't want to be an idol worshiper, if I want to be a faithful servant like Joshua, the first thing is seek things that are above. Secondly, set my mind on things that are above. Verse 3, he explains why. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Verse 5, here's the third thing he tells us to do. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He goes on to say, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You see the formula right there? 
Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. And kill sin in your life. Oh, that was easy. Let's go home. A lot easier said and read than done. But this is the battle that God calls us to. Remember in the first series we said, there's a God who fights for us. In the second sermon we said, but this God wants us to fight for him. And he says, when I worship idols, I'm whoring myself out like an unfaithful spouse. Bottom line, God won't compete with idols. And idols can't compete with God. God won't compete. It's beneath him to compete with the things that I chase after that I think are going to make me happy. The things that I chase after that I think if I lose them, I'll be devastated. He's not even going to play that game. And he'll let me become a slave to those things. Just like he did with the children of Israel. But he's a faithful God that if I cry out in repentance and I turn to the one that sets us free from that, Jesus Christ, his son, will find that idols can never compete with God. It says in 1 Peter that we have a treasure, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. That means everything on this earth may pass away. This won't. Everything else can be taken away. This can't. God won't compete with the things we worship. He won't do it. Because the things we worship can never compete with him. I want to be a faithful servant of the Lord. I believe this passage is calling us to be like Joshua. Hashtag life goals. Just to be known as one who set his mind on things above. That's seeking the things above. And killing sin in my life. So the way we're going to close is we're going to spend a moment in reflection and in a moment of prayer. The band will come, and I'm going to ask you with me if you'll bow uh, your heads. Whether you're a Christian or not, here in Manistee both, um, we just want to spend a, a moment. And the first thing that I would ask you to ask God is, God, what idols... Might there be in my heart? Would you show them to me? there's something or someone that has come to your mind maybe take a moment and confess that to God as sin and ask him to forgive you of idol worship
maybe one more thing. If we together as a church, those of us who believe in Christ and in his spirit, and even those who aren't sure, maybe ask him right now in your own way how you can set your mind on things above, seek the things that are above, and how you could start to put sin to death. God, how do I do that? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are faithful. That you're a faithful God through the ages. God, I pray that you would help us, young and old, from every generation, to actively seek the things that matter. To set our mind on you. God, by the power of your spirit, would you help us to kill sin and refuse to bow down to false gods? And it's by your spirit and the power of Christ that we ask these things. Church, if you agree, say amen.